Well, welcome to another episode of The Dinner Table with your host, Joe Sheehan. I'm Joe Sheehan. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate everybody that's out there listening. We're a small audience, but hey, we're growing every time that this comes out. So keep pushing the advertisements, keep pushing your friends to listen. Um, We appreciate it. Um, Once this thing starts getting big enough, uh, we'll start moving into the vlog a spear and have both the uh both the uh and yes I've gone blank <laughs> um we'll have both the podcast and the vlog okay uh possibly a YouTube channel uh we want to grow we want to make this something that people will enjoy not just those who like to listen to podcasts but also those who like to watch a show and so forth and so on. And, you know, some people like to see people talk and discuss issues and all the like. Also, uh, the bigger we get, the more cool people we can have on our show, the more people we can come in and talk about really amazing topics. And so just keep pushing that out there. Uh, if you're really interested in what, what's going on here um, on the uh, dinner, at the dinner table. Well... Uh, it's been a while since we put out the last uh, podcast. Um, a lot of stuff has been happening. Baseball season has picked up, uh, high school baseball season, so that's one of the reasons why I haven't been on here as frequently as I would like. Uh, again, I know I only missed a week, but hey, I don't want to miss a week. I want to keep you guys' uh, interests and wanting in searching and looking for the truth. That being said, Baseball season is well up and swinging, even professional baseball season. In fact, uh, the first games of spring training have already occurred. The Red Sox are doing really, really well. Go Sox. Uh, they beat the Yankees, so again, that's always good. Uh, JBJ, Jackie Bradley Jr., hit a home run today at his first plate appearance, so that's really good stuff. Um, what else? The Mets played the Houston Astros. Uh, Tim Tebow got robbed by a up and comer, which is good. Uh, Tebow, I love Tebow. I love his faith. I love what he does for people. Um, but I'm not a whole fan when it comes to him throwing his hat into the ring in Major League Baseball. Like it's easy. Um, I hate that kind of cavalier attitude about the game I love. Um, also, I wish he had stuck with football. Um, and to be honest with you, as much as uh, he is a brother in Christ, and I love his faith, and I love the fact that he has been an incredible representative for Jesus Christ in the realm of football, I do believe that his lack of humility in New England, as his not wanting to be a tight end when Belichick needed a tight end, uh, ultimately I think that's what ruined his career. Uh, again, we can have an argument. We can talk about the fact that he had a bad throwing motion, that he wasn't a, an NFL QB. Um, but the funny thing is about Tim Tebow, he always found a way to win. And he inspires people in the locker room. And those are those are things that owners and coaches like. And unfortunately, he, I think he burned a lot of bridges. By not showing a certain level of humility, uh, not being a, not being willing to be a team player, but wanting to pursue his own goals. So he's thrown his hat into baseball. God bless him in that. I hope he has an amazing career. And honestly, if he makes it to the show, God, you know, that's even greater, uh, a greater success. So uh, more power to him. I just, again, struggle with throwing my full-throated support behind that. A lot of stuff has happened between now and the last podcast. Uh, we have Jesse Smollett being found out to be a fabricator of crimes uh, in order to achieve a political agenda and a professional, uh, personal professional advantage, hoping that being a victim would make him more palatable to the showrunners and producers and executive producers and financiers of his television show that he was on. Unfortunately, he's done a lot of damage to real victims. He's done a lot of damage to the causes of victimhood, Um, especially victims being believed when they are making their accusations. 
it's important that we show victims support. It's important that we show victims that we empathize with their plight, that we empathize with this, the suffering that they have experienced. That being said, it is also equally important that we keep the idea in this country that you're innocent until proven guilty. Innocent until proven guilty is one of the things that sets us apart from the rest of the world. The rest of the world, it is the burden of proof falls on the accused, especially in criminal matters. Um, and it has to be without a doubt. It has The burden of proof has to be without a reasonable doubt. In several cases in the media, we have seen that the mob and the media have been all too willing to jump on the accused, especially if the accused does not fit their political ideological mold. And unfortunately for society, that drives a wedge even further into what could be an amazing opportunity to demonstrate constraint, wisdom, reason, and the ability to allow justice to unfail, unfurl, excuse me. Uh, instead, what we have is we have a quick knee-jerk reaction to the immediacy of guilt. And I think that that is an expression of our own failings as a society. Uh, we are not teaching moral value, virtue subjects anymore in school. Uh, as a public school teacher, I am very well aware of the ramifications of the lack of morality and virtue training. And I think the reason why we've abandoned that is because, again, I go back to what I'm always talking about on here, which is postmodernism. This idea that, you know, truth is in the eye of the beholder, uh, that truth is malleable, that truth is flexible, that I have my own truth. And in, in that regard, when we start talking about moral and values and those types of things in the classroom, the, the question ultimately becomes, well, whose morals? Whose values? And I think that... When you look at that whole dichotomy, that whole issue, we have certain morals and certain values that go across the board. They're not just religious. They're not political. They're not ideological. There is a certain foundation of morality that we all agree upon. And we've lost that in the name of inclusiveness. We've lost that focus and that desire to teach that in our children. And on top of that, we, we see that now rising up in our country. Now, if we don't like a person, they're automatically guilty. If we don't like that person's politics, they're automatically guilty. Even to the point now where we have no problems falsely accusing a person of being a racist of being xenophobic, homophobic, transphobic, simply because they have an idea of what they can and can't support. And if you don't fall in line, well, you're obviously, you know, a hater. Well, what is the real definition of hate? I mean, even, even the dictionaries are beginning to change this definition of hate to include just not liking something or disagreeing with a person. I can disagree with you and love you. I, I don't understand this idea that I have to agree wholeheartedly with every part of your life or I hate you. Um, I prefer the biblical definition of hate. I prefer what Jesus said about hate. Hate is the desire that leads to murder. 
If I hate someone, I want to see them dead. And then on top of that, hate also is the desire to see that person in hell. And I'll be honest with you, when people talk about, you know, hey, such and such is a sin, we're not saying that we're not, that's not hateful. I'm not condemning you to hell when I call out a sin. I'm not. I'm simply saying, I'm simply stating a religious fact. That is a sin. That that is not an action that is pleasing to God. I'm not saying you are sinful. I am saying that action is sinful. And that you are capable of avoiding said action. And that through the grace of Jesus Christ and through the grace of God, you can achieve victory over that. But unfortunately, we have a society now that glorifies victimhood. And the reason why they do that is because that allows that victim to have power. And so that's what I want to go into today is I kind of want to start discussing, well, what were the roots what does it mean? What does America mean? You know, what were our roots? And this is probably going to be a series. I'm probably going to stay on this for, for a couple of podcasts because I think it's important. I think it's important that we go back to the founding documents. I'm not going to make a lot of comments on what's going on in the news today. I think we're going to start setting up um, talking about what it means to be an American what it what america really means how was america how was the american revolution different than every revolution that has occurred how is america different than any country that is out there there's an idea that we're no different and we are we're incredibly different so that's what we're going to talk about we're going to talk about today we're going to start diving into the declaration of independence uh, for those of you who have never read the Declaration of Independence, um, I highly recommend it. It's only about a 14 to 15 minute read. Uh, it does not take very long at all. Um, now, you may struggle with the verbiage and how it is written because it was written in uh, official language of the 18th century, the legal and official language of the 18th century. So it's not very much the way we speak today. However, it is incredibly important. You have to start with the Declaration of Independence if you are going to understand the foundational founding principles of this country. And especially if you're going to understand the contract between American, or excuse me, the contract between America and its government. The Constitution. You can't understand the Constitution without first understanding the Declaration of Independence. And so we're going to go through the Declaration of Independence. Um, we're going to talk about founding principles. We're going to look at the en Enlightenment philosophies that inspired um, this movement. We're also going to look at post-Enlightenment uh, thought in regards to uh, the American experiment. Um, there's some really good stuff out there. Um, I highly recommend that people read it. And if you're not into reading the Declaration of Independence, you know, if that's just not your bag, <laughs> as uh, Austin Powers would say, you know what? There's an amazing video on YouTube that you can look up. It was, uh, I think, produced at the same time as um, right around 9-11. Um, and it's a bunch of actors perform, well, reading, performing with their voices, uh, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it's really moving. It's really good. Uh, it, it is the entire Declaration of Independence. It is not edited. They read it aloud. Uh, and it's you will recognize the actors. Many of them are still actors today. And it's, it's, it's really good. I use it in my uh, government class when I teach government. So here we go. Uh, we are going to look at um, the first couple of paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read some of it to you because again, um, it's some powerful language. It is, it is this document itself inspires revolution. Okay, um, so again, here we begin. Uh, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands, which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God 
entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. That paragraph right there is immediately declaring by it's it's Thomas Jefferson and it's the American people immediately declaring they've got a beef with Great Britain. And because they have a beef with Great Britain, they're going to separate politically from them. They're going to create their own nation. All right. And why? Because the the country that they are a part of and the government that they uh, have have sworn their allegiance to has violated the laws of nature and nature's God, or what we call Lonang. Okay, that's the acronym for it. All right, Lonang, laws of nature and nature's God. So let's look on. So why, so they've immediately right there in the first paragraph declared they are separating. So in the second paragraph, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such a form as to them seem shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light of transient causes. And, accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invents a design to reduce them to under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferances of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them, constrains them to alter their former system of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. And to prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And they let go on to list 27 offenses that the king committed against them. And no, it wasn't just taxation without representation. All right, it wasn't just a bunch of people not wanting to pay taxes. Okay, that was the final straw. Okay, there was a long line, as it says in the declaration of abuses and usurpations. So let's talk about that final, that, that was a long paragraph, I know guys, it was super long. But let's, let's break it down. We hold these truths, guys, we're not saying we hold these opinions. There is a difference between truth and opinion, even though postmodernists don't like that. We hold these truths. So they're about to lay down what are the truths. To be self-evident. In other words, they're obvious to a thinking man and woman. Okay, That all men are created equal. Well, first of all, there it is. Well, what does that mean? Why is that phrase so revolutionary? It includes a king. And this is a time period where people didn't believe. If you were noble, if you were of noble birth, if you were the king, you were not equal to other people. You were not equal to the layman. You were not equal to the, to the serf. But this is a radical new idea. Started in the Renaissance. Built in the Reformation and confirmed in the Enlightenment. This phrase is held up by Thomas Hobbes when he writes the Leviathan. In my, by the way, in defense of a monarchy. All right. Hobbes was not a, you know, democracy guy. He was a monarchy guy. But he still advocated that all men were created equal and that they give up their right to self-government to the the monarch. 
this is also Thomas Locke, who wrote after Hobbes. Okay. Um, we also have that they are endowed by their creator or certain unalienable rights. This isn't they're endowed by nature. It is capital C creator. In other words, they are endowed by God. Man is endowed by God. Therefore, there is a higher power other than the government that gives you your rights, that gives you loaning. Okay? It's not just loan, it's loaning, law of nature and nature's God. Okay? I know a lot of our separation of church and state people want to talk about a secular government, but John Adams once said that this type of government that we have established is rightly inappropriate for a non-religious people. Secular governments fail. It's true. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a believer, but a fear of God, a fear of a heavenly being, and what I mean by fear is not trembling and scary. No, I mean respect. Respect of him and respect of his laws and respect of his people are important to the type of government that we have. We have to have a religious and virtuous people, as the founding fathers would say. They call them unalienable rights. Well, what does that mean? Unalienable means they can't be taken away. Government cannot separate you from something that God has given you. And then we go into the crux, what everybody knows and everybody loves, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, life, obviously, uh, we know the protections of life in the Constitution. Okay, um, Hobbes and Locke both describe that government is founded to protect the life of its people. Okay, whether through military means, whether through police, whether through allowing people the right to self-defense, okay? All of these things are rights. You have a right to your life. And I would even argue that the reason why we don't see the unborn protected here was that was considered to be self-evident as well. Why do we even need to talk about it? No woman, if she got pregnant, would ever destroy her child, right? Well... We can go on from there. But liberty, liberty is an interesting one. Liberty is freedom, but it is also liberty. It is freedom from oppression. Okay? That is what liberty means. And it's interesting that we have different types of liberty that's out there. But I think there is a, an amazing definition of what the men of the revolution thought about liberty and what liberty meant. Um, in a book by probably we could call the first uh, libertarian, uh, he was writing in the mid-1800s, uh, again, not that far off from uh, the revolution of America, but he was writing in Great Britain, believe it or not, where he got, he got to see the after effects of the French Revolution. He got to see the after effects of the American Revolution. And he got to see a lot of really great things. And he got to see those ripple effects in Great Britain. And uh, John Stuart Mill, in his book On Liberty, defines human liberty as this. Human liberty, it comprises first the inward domain of consciousness. In other words, you have to be able to understand it. Demanding liberty of conscience in the most comprehensive sense. Liberty of thought and feeling. Absolute freedom of opinion and sentiment on all subjects, practical or speculative, scientific, moral, or theological. The liberty of expressing and publishing opinions may seem to fall under a different principle, since it belongs to that part of the conduct of an individual which concerns other people, but being almost of as much importance as the liberty of thought itself, and resting in great part on that same reason, is practically inseparable from it. Secondly, the principle requires liberty of tastes and pursuits, of framing the plan of your life to suit our own character, of doing as we like, subject to such consequences as may follow, without impediment from our fellow creatures, so long as what we do does not harm them, 
even though they should think our conduct foolish, perverse, or wrong. Thirdly, from the liberty of each individual follows the liberty within the same limits of combination among individuals, freedom to unite for any purpose, not involving harm to others, the persons combining being supposed to be a full age and not forced or deceived. No society in which these liberties are not, on the whole, respected, is free, whatever may be its form of government. So there you go. You're free to be you. And I think that's where we get pursuit of happiness. Now, again, happiness does not mean what we think happiness means today. This is from Aristotle and his meta-ethics. And in Aristotle's meta-ethics, he said that the only way that a human can be happy is on their deathbed. Because that human will think back upon their life and they will see a full life. And a full life, according to Aristotle, meant were you active in your society? Did you help people? Did, did you live a good life? Did you live a prosperous life? Did you take care of your family? Were, were you a member of the civic organization? Were you a member of the government? Did you help propel freedom and those types of things? Did you live a virtuous and moral life? If you did, you can look back on your life and say, okay, I'm happy. Yeah, that's good. So here, instead of happiness, like what we think of joy, we think of the pursuit of living a full life. Now, liberty and on liberty, John Stuart Mill says that that should be allowed for anybody. And even if you think that that person is living wrong, even if you think that that person is living a perverse life, even if you think that those things are occurring, you should allow them as long as they are not harming you or another person. And that's one of the reasons why you can say, okay, fine, you know, homosexuality and homosexual marriage, that's not for the state to say. That would be a violation of liberty. Abortion, on the other hand, is a violation of liberty because it is harmful to the baby within the mother. And we can go on. But again, when we're looking at this, we see that you know, the powers of the consent of the governed, that's Locke. That the, the, that governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. That's Lockean. All right, that's in his two treatises of government. Uh, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is right of the people to alter or abolish it. Both Lockean and Hobbes, even Montesquieu, institute new government, laying its foundations and such principles, organizing its powers in such form, okay, for safety and happiness. Again, safety primary principle, happiness, allowing people to live a full life, staying out of people's lives. Wisdom or prudence indeed dictates that government long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. In other words, just because you don't like what the government's doing doesn't mean you get to overthrow it. All right. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable. In other words, slight changes in that are there. However, when they go on to talking about that pursuing invariably the same object invinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government. I want you to hear that. Not only is it your right, okay, it is your right to throw off your government, but look at those uh, the next four words. It is their duty. Not only do you have a right to do it, you ought to do it. You must do it. We don't talk about duty anymore. Probably because it's funny to say, ha 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 ha, duty. But I think the reason why we talk about that is because, again, it comes back to that moral relativism. You have to have a moral compass. You have to have a value system. You have to know what your morals and values are in order to have a duty to enforce those or to protect those or to advocate for them. So again, when we're looking at these issues, when we're looking at the foundational founding of our, the foundational document, excuse me, of our founding, 
we have to look at the Declaration of Independence. Now, on the next episode, that what we're going to do is we are going to go through the lists of abuses, and we're going to look at the Constitution. And we're going to look at how that list of abuses highlights why the Constitution was structured in the way that it was structured. We're also going to talk about the value of a Constitution. We're going to talk about social contract. We're going to talk about we are outlining that if you violate this document, if you violate the things that are in these documents, we have a right to absolve this government. We have a duty to absolve this government. And if we and we all know that our found that our founders wrote this con- constitution as a contract with the American people. And if anyone's ever studied contract law, they know contracts are binding. The constitution is not a living breathing document. It's not. It is a contract. It is no more living and breathing document than the contract that you have with your employer. It's no more than that. It's no more than, a, than any contract you ever sign. Contracts are ironclad. That is why we have an amendment process. If it was a living, breathing document, we wouldn't need amendments. If the Constitution was supposed to change over time, we wouldn't need amendments. The Constitution outlines the appropriate function of government. Period. This is why civic education is floundering in our country is because if the American people understood the Constitution, if they understood the founding documents, then they would know whether or not the government was doing its job. And I think you would see a lot less people in support of socialism too. Because you would know that such programs are a violation because why? They steal property, which is protected under the Fifth Amendment which is protected by the Constitution. See, they changed the line, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness to life, liberty, and property, which is what Locke said, which is the appropriate function of government. So again, next week, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to continue this study of the founding documents. We're going to continue this study of things that I think we need a refresher course in as a nation. But again, I want to remind you guys, please, please, please forward this on. Let people know about the dinner table. If you really enjoy it, if you really find it entertaining or at least educational, um, again, I try to keep it short. I don't want to keep it a long time. Uh, Again, you know, I don't want 45 minutes, an hour, all those different things. I want to keep it about 30 minutes. I might go a little long sometimes. This might be 35 minutes. Who knows? But guys, again, send this out there. Encourage people to take 30 minutes of their time to listen to this. Again, the you know I'm going to give my opinion, but the things that we cover today are not opinion. These are facts. If you do just a little bit of history and you do just a little bit of research, you will find these facts. I read directly to you from the Declaration of Independence. I read directly to you from On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. I told you the sections. I identified those sections. That's what we're going to be doing. This is an education. If you've never studied this, you need to know these things. We're going to come more from a libertarian bend than we come in any other direction. All right? Because again... It is better to err on the side of freedom than it is to err on the side of tyranny. With that being said, God bless you guys. Hope you have a wonderful week. And we'll see you next time at the dinner table. Welcome to another episode of The Dinner Table with Joe Sheehan. I'm your host, Joe Sheehan. Um, Thank you for coming back and listening for what we're doing. Uh, We're trying to educate and enlighten and have a little fun and just have a general idea of what's going on out there. Uh, Last week we talked about the Declaration of Independence, especially the opening two paragraphs um, where we talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And um, again, I want to go further into that at another time, but uh, honestly, we are going to go in a different direction today um, because the research that I'm trying to do for that segment is uh, a little more extensive than I thought it would be. And honestly, I want to make sure that we are accurate in our information that we share on this podcast. Uh, Because again, uh, this is meant to educate. It's meant to be out there. It's meant to be 
for you guys to give to your families and friends and encourage them to come on and uh, enjoy our show. Um, so let's see uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about liberty. We're going to talk a little bit about free speech, a little bit about uh, sports, um, talk about some of the things that I'm reading right now uh, and how that those are uh, impacting some of the things that I'm doing uh, right now. Uh, it's pretty, pretty awesome uh, the things that are going on. Uh, as a coach, as a teacher, I try to read as much as I can. Uh, it helps me be a better teacher, helps me be a better person, helps me be a better coach. I really enjoy being a coach. I really enjoy being someone that young men look up to, to help mold and guide them, but also help them achieve their athletic goals. Uh, and I hope in helping them achieve their athletic goals, I'm also helping them achieve their personal goals. Their, uh, one of the greatest compliments um, someone could ever, especially a former player, could ever pay me is um, to say that they're a better father, a better husband, a better employee because I was their coach, that I taught them something. And I think that's shared among all coaches. I think most coaches that are out there, 99.9% .9 of coaches that are out there, uh, especially at the high school level and lower, uh, feel that way. Uh, and again, because a lot of high school coaches aren't, aren't making the big bucks. Um, a lot of coaches that are out there, uh, especially here in the state of Texas, here in the state of Texas, in order to be a high school coach, unless you are coaching private school or you are coaching for um, a homeschool group that can pay you some money, uh, most of them are teachers. Most, most of them have to be paid a teacher's wage. The UIL does not allow for stipend coaches. Uh, you're not allowed to be a part-time employee of a district. Uh, so again, it's uh, one of those things where, you know, it'd be nice. It'd be nice if we did that. But most of the time, your coaching job is attached to a teaching position. And so you have to do both and you have to double dip. And so you're dealing with young people in the classroom. You're dealing with young people on the field. And uh, so being a coach here in Texas is, you know, it's a it's an all around job. It's a for many coaches, it's a 12 hour job. I know that sometimes in the news media, it uh, it gets blown out of proportion. Some of these head coaching jobs getting paid six figure salaries. Many of the hood coaching jobs uh, in the state of Texas also carry with it athletic directorships, especially in the smaller districts. So if they are an athletic director, not only are they having to run a successful football program, they're also having to run a successful high school athletics program, including female athletics. They're also having to run a successful middle school athletics program, including female athletics. So their jobs are incredibly busy. Uh, many athletic directors put in uh, 70 to 90 hours a week, uh, and that is a normal schedule for them. Um, especially during football season. Uh, football season requires a lot out of the coaches. I know that as a football coach myself, um, during football season, I work anywhere from 80 to 100 hours, just depending on what my schedule looks like. Uh, and that also depends on what coach I work for. Uh, I've had coaches where we don't work on Sundays. We get to go home, uh, be with our families one day a week. Um, and we work every day, Monday through Saturday. Um, getting people to, you know, perform in the way that they need to perform, watching tape, watching film, doing all of those things. So again, uh, when you calculate the amount of hours that coaches, head coaches, athletic directors have to work, compare that to the average teacher who, again, the average teacher does not work a 40-hour work week. If they do, they're not going to be a teacher for very long. Um, the average teacher usually works anywhere between 50 to 60 hours. Um, and so that's why teachers really don't get paid a lot. Everybody's like, well, you're off on the, you're off on the summers. No, you're really not off on during the summers. I know working for a small district, uh, every summer that I worked there, I had something I had to do over the summer. And then when I'm a coach, uh, especially a football coach, uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I have to start working in the middle of July. And then, uh, so that really means that, especially if school doesn't get out to the first week of June, I only have about six or seven weeks off. And if I'm not going to trainings during those weeks, either for football or for academics, uh, I know I, be, I went to two AP trainings during my time at 
uh, one of my high schools. I went to, did it during the summer, and each one of those was one week in length, and that was time away from my family. Um, and then I, I, as soon as I was finished with that, guess what happened? I had to start football. And uh, I worked for a gentleman who required us to work on Sundays. So I was working 100-hour weeks. Um, and it's exhausting. And so I don't begrudge any coach uh, that's out there their salary. I don't begrudge any teacher their salary. I think teachers make incredible sacrifices in order to be teachers, especially teachers who teach in small districts or in teachers in inner city districts, uh, especially where funding tends to go to overbloated bureaucracies instead of in the classroom. So uh, I think we need to be, as parents, we need to give our teachers a break. Okay, They're not only raising our children for us, but they're also having to raise their own. Many teachers have to sacrifice their child's, and especially coaches, uh, have to sacrifice their child's events, being able to go see their child play a game, being able to see their child perform in a concert, uh, to be at your child's concert. And uh, so, again, before you start complaining about teachers and how much they make and teachers begging uh, for more money, we have to realize that teachers are um, necessary. We, we need teachers. We need people who are willing to make those sacrifices. But many teachers are having to make unreal sacrifices. Um, some school districts does, could uh, do with splitting up. Some school districts, especially in Texas, are too large. Uh, they could divide up and share and conquer, uh, get more money. Also, too, another thing that they could do is some schools are just ridiculous. You can hear my kids in the background. Uh, in that, you know, they have four different administrators doing the same dang job. That's ridiculous. It shouldn't be that way. Um, especially when you're paying that administrator a six-figure salary. Um, if, it's, if it's something that one person can get done, but yeah, they might have to work 50 to 60 hour weeks, then maybe, maybe two people could do that job. But do they really need to be making, you know, $170,000 a year? You know, is, is that really necessary? Do, do uh, school board presidents and uh, superintendents need to be making three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 a year? Uh, is that really something they should be making? And, and on top of that, you know, we got to look at funding modalities. Should, you know, a lot of public schools are paid by taxes. And so that's one of the reasons why they look at teachers and go, ooh, you know, what if, what if we got a bad teacher here? So education is kind of a um, more nuanced subject than most people would like to allow. But at the same time, you know, we have to be respectful to teachers. There, there used to be a time where teachers were respected. There used to be a time where teachers were given the respect that they deserve. Today, uh, it's very obvious. Just look at the kids and how the kids teach teachers or treat teachers. Um, I experience it on a daily basis. The disrespect, the lack of focus, the lack of desire towards an education. I, see, I experience it every day. Um, and it's sad. It's sad, really, uh, that parents either are too busy to take an interest in what their kid is doing or parents are simply using schools as daycares and so they just don't care uh, it's just a place for them to send their kid you know so while they're at work well that's not what schools are for that's not what schools were intended to be in compulsory education i feel has kind of led us down that path well, that's my sermon on education, and it started by talking about coaching. Let's continue to talk about coaching. Uh, right now, I am coaching baseball. Uh, my baseball team just won a tournament championship. It was awesome. Uh, they did an amazing job. Um, and uh, I have been asked to be the hitting coach for the varsity team uh, this year. Um, I've been everything from a hitting coach to a pitching coach to a head JV coach, which I had to do both to an announcer in a booth. Uh, when you're a coach, you do all jobs. You are Johnny on the spot. And uh, you're a jack of all trades and a master of none. But I'd like to try to improve myself. And one of the ways that I'm improving myself right now is I'm reading a book by Zach Schonbrunn. And Zach, if you, if you ever get a hold of this, you know, give me a shout. You know, pay me, pay me a dollar for giving a shout out for your book. Um, but again, uh, I'm reading the, a book called The Performance Cortex, how Neuroscience is Redefining Athletic Genius. And this is actually a really good book. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I'm not all the way through it. 
so I'm not going to give too much of a dissertation on the read. But I am already taking things that I'm learning. It's talking about reaction time. And as we all know as baseball coaches, if you're a baseball coach out there listening to this, and if you're not a baseball coach and you're just interested in sports or you've played baseball, we all know that the reaction time from picking up a pitch, identifying a pitch, choosing to swing, and swinging is about 400 milliseconds. I'm going to say that again. It's about 400 milliseconds. Okay, guys, that's faster than the blink of an eye, which is about 500 milliseconds. All right. As fast as you can blink your eye, you have to make a decision whether or not you're going to swing, which is one of the reasons why we work in hitting on not moving the head, not moving the eyes, being able to see the trajectory of the ball clearly. So you've got to be able to pick all that up, especially uh, regarding if it's a 95 mile an hour fastball. So how do people react to that. Different people have faster reaction time than other people. And so that's what this book's about. It's about the study of neuroscience and, and about how uh, there are two gentlemen out of Columbia who are tracking this and they're able to quantify uh, how fast a person can react and recognize a pitch and make a decision whether to swing or not swing. And Major League Baseball's teams are using this combined with Saber Matrix to make decisions on players. And so we're going to start seeing, if this takes off, we're going to start seeing players that normally would have never gotten drafted. But because they have that reaction time and they have that ability to hit a baseball and recognize a pitch, they're going to be going, they're going, to, be going to the pros. This may be one of the reasons why the Mets are, are happy with what Tim Tebow is doing in the minor leagues. Okay, uh, They may be looking at his reaction time, his ability to adapt, his saber matrix, his on-base percentage, all of those things. Uh, and, and it may not necessarily be a uh, media ploy to get sell more tickets, okay? And so it's really good. And um, I've been able to take certain uh, concepts that I've learned by reading, uh, especially about how uh, neurological signals are sent to the muscles and how no reaction is exactly the same every single time because of what they call noise. I've also learned that uh, muscle memory is in the brain and it's a combination of different neurons that have grouped together in order to create that particular motion. And so in learning that, I was able to design some baseball drills, uh, some hitting drills, to really isolate certain muscle groups in, involved in hitting and be able to just focus on that neuro connection, that neurological connection, uh, and really build those muscle groups, really build that muscle memory more, more exact. Also learned that slow is better uh, in developing those those groups. That moving movement in slow is more accurate, and so we're teaching the muscle group to react accurately by moving slowly. And so we were doing those things. And I'll be honest with you, if there are any baseball coaches out here uh, listening to this, I want I want you to know um, that it worked. Uh, in the final game, our our hitting in this tournament was absolutely incredible. We had several. Of our athletes, um, I think I think we had one athlete actually bat for a thousand uh, in the tournament. Uh, every time he got a hit, every time he was at bat. So that's I mean it's incredible. It's incredible that I think our team average was a five hundred um, or over. And so it it's incredible the things that we saw this weekend based on just these just one week of working with these types of drills. Uh, especially the final game of the tournament, my one through nine, we went through the entire lineup in the first inning and every single one of them got a hit. So we were stroking the kid and he was, a, he wasn't a bad pitcher. He wasn't a bad pitcher at all. He had good velocity, good movement on his stuff. We were just seeing it. And I really feel like reading this book, again, it's the performance cortex by Zach Schonbrunn. And I recommend reading this. Uh, Shambran is a sports writer, I believe, for the Sports Illustrated. And it's a really good read. It's, a, it's an easy read. It, it does get into the neuroscience, so it's a little wordy uh, for those of you who you know you are a little worried about studying something. But it's interesting. He keeps it really interesting. He keeps it tied to sports. He keeps it tied to the focuses. So if you're into kinesiology, into body movement, or you're just looking for that edge to help you get figure things out. Now, I will warn you. Okay, if your players are used to a very certain type of batting practice, this is going to throw a wrench in it. Okay, especially if you take those those small movements, uh, they're not going to understand why they're doing it. It's going to feel awkward. It's going to feel weird. It's going to feel strange, and the kids are going to resist it. 
be forceful with it. Tell them, you can tell them why, but they're not going to understand it, most of them. Just tell, you know, let them know that this is about getting small. It's about slowing down their reaction, slowing down for accuracy. We want to make them better hitters. We're isolating things, building muscle memory. They know those words. They've heard those words before. They've heard coaches say those words. And so use those words with them, okay? Again, they're going to be pretty upset about, you know, things changing up. But don't worry about it. They'll, they'll adjust. They're kids, you know, remember, you're the coach. They're the kid, okay? And uh, and let me know. Um, you know, uh, reach out. Um, you know, tell me, uh, you know, find uh, find me on uh, Instagram. I, my Instagram is Joe underscore Sheehan. Or not Instagram, sorry. <laughs> I don't do use Instagram anymore. Find me on Twitter, uh, Coach Joe Sheehan. All right, on Twitter. Let me know what you think. Let me know if it works for you. Um, it should be a really good thing. The next topic I think I want to talk about is uh, yesterday at CPAC, we had uh, the president declare that he was going to sign an executive decision um, enforcing free speech on college campuses. If college campuses wanted federal money, they would encourage free speech. And I know that some people, some of the never Trumpers, especially on the right, have exclaimed that, you know, you know enforcing free speech is not uh, free speech. Well, yeah, it is. OK, the Second Amendment guarantees free speech. That's an enforcement of free speech. OK, so uh, saying that it's not is just just proves that those people that are on the right, either Trump can never those those never Trumpers on the right, uh, they either. Uh, never want Trump to ever be successful. Uh, they don't believe that Trump could ever be successful, or they themselves want to be able to limit speech on the left. And so um, that, those are all things that we have to wait, watch out for. But um, like last week, I want to kind of go into, I'm, I'm rereading On Liberty uh, by John Stuart Mill. This was written in the 1850s uh, by probably the father of libertarianism or at least one of the fathers of libertarian. Uh, this is every liberal's favorite uh, political science, political philosopher. Uh, this guy you know, wrote this in 1850. The liberals have used this for years, but I'll be honest with you, uh, the progressives probably don't like a lot of the things that he has to say. Um, because, again, um, he talks about liberty and what is a free society. Um, so let's, I want to kind of go through some of the things that I've been reading, um, and especially about free speech. Okay. Uh, free speech is pretty important. We had a young man get punched in the face at, um, a university of California campus. Um, that the gentleman who punched him is now in jail. Thank God. Thank goodness for uh, good people out there doing good things. Um, but now what I want to talk about is it's, it's something that I see uh, a lot. We are a free country. We are a pluralistic country. We allow the idea of differing ideas. Okay? Um, we allow people to have differing ideas. Um, I remember growing up as a kid, we used to say, you know, if we disagreed with somebody or um, if we didn't think what somebody was doing was right, we would say, you know, do what you want to do. It's a free country. Well, unfortunately, what we have now is we have a society where if you offend me, if what you say offends me, uh, if what you do offends me, you have to stop it. You are not supposed to offend me. That's offensive. Well, I don't know where that came from. I don't understand. It's on both sides of the aisle. Um, but that's not what this country was about. This country was not founded on the idea of lack of offense. If, if it, anything, it was founded on the idea that you're going to be offended. Grow up, buttercup. Pull up your big boy pants and let's get going. If you have an idea, debate it. You know, but un, un, unfortunately, we're now all about offense. You offended me. I'm offended. You can't offend me. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, you know, now we've got religious symbols that were that are memorials uh, to soldiers that have died being challenged by atheists. Oh, that symbol offends me. Oh, that offends me. You know what? Grow up, buttercup. Pull up your big boy pants and let's talk about it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look uh, again. Uh, we're, we're with John Stuart Mill. I've been reading this on Liberty. Uh, I really enjoy it. And um, there's some interesting things. Uh, one that I picked up, uh, one thing, uh, one 
issue that he takes on. He spends a a lot of pages on the idea of liberty of thought and discussion. This idea that unless you're willing to tolerate opposing ideas in your society, your society cannot be free. That if you limit the the marketplace of ideas, then you can't be free. Now, this flies in the face of both sides of the aisle because I know for a fact that there are people on the right that don't want people to live certain ways. There are people on the Christian right that don't want homosexuals to be able to live the life of a homosexual. They don't want Muslims to be able to be in this country. They don't want, you see what I'm saying? But there are people on the exact other side that do the same exact thing. Uh, your environmentalists, your scientists in university who refuse to allow anyone who believes in, intel, in uh, intelligent design or in creationism uh, to have a place inside the scientific, uh, scientific sphere, okay? Well, again, uh, especially now, with um, we have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, out there talking about the Green New Deal, and you know, if you don't believe in environmentalism, then you're a liar and you're a climate denier and all this blah blah blah. All right. Well, um, John Stuart Mill said this: to call any proposition certain, while there is anyone who would deny its certainty is, if permitted, but who is not permitted, is to assume that we ourselves and those who agree with us are the judges of certainty and judges without hearing the other side. So in other words, this is environmentalism, right? This is, this is anybody out there that says, no, this is the truth, this is what... Okay, understand this. We're not saying that the truth isn't real. This isn't postmodernism, okay? Even though it smacks of some postmodernistic ideas, it's not really postmodernism. Because he goes on, he goes on later, explains that, you know, if, if the truth is the truth, it'll come out. So at least he's willing to admit that there really is truth. And then he goes on to say, there are... It is alleged certain beliefs so useful, not to say indispensable to well-being, that it is much the duty of governments to uphold those beliefs as to protect any other of the interests of society. In a case of such necessity, and so directly in the line of their duty, something less than infallibility may, it is maintained, warrant, and even bind governments to act on their own opinion, confirmed by the general opinion of mankind. It is also often argued and still oftener thought that none but bad men would desire to weaken those salutary beliefs, and there can be nothing wrong. It is thought in restraining bad men and prohibiting what only such men would wish to practice. This mode of thinking makes the justification of restraints on discussion not a question of truth of doctrines, but of their usefulness, and flatters itself by the means to escape the responsibility of claiming to be an infallible judge of opinions. But those who thus satisfy themselves do not perceive that the assumption of infallibility is merely shifted from one point to another. This sounds a lot like what we have on college campuses. Okay? They, have, they have created this dogma on college campuses, and so anyone who comes around challenging the dogma with other thinking even though they believe that they've casted off that other thinking and that other thinking is no longer valid, they've now made themselves judges of that opinion. And in doing so, they are now denying people from being able, and they're even accusing them of being bad people. If you believe this, you're a bad person. If you believe this, you're evil. We hear this a lot from the left. If you believe something, you're bad men. Okay, well, what is the result of that? And in point of fact, when law or public feeling do not permit the truth of an opinion to be disputed, they are just as little tolerant of a denial of its usefulness. In the opinion not of bad men, but of the best men, no belief which is contrary to truth can be really useful. And can you prevent such men from urging that plea when they are charged with culpability for denying some doctrine which they are told is useful, but which they believe to be false? Guys, he goes on. Again, I highly recommend this book. I highly recommend this book because, again, it's, it's, it's showing us these ideas of liberty. It's showing us what liberty really is. And I, I agree with a lot. I don't agree with necessarily everything that John Stuart Mill says, but I agree a lot with what he says. Because, again, take it to the basic structure of humanity. 
human beings were created. All right, they were created by their creator. All right, we've established that in the Declaration of Independence. We know that the creator is God. Okay, and we know that through that creator, they were given inalienable rights. They were also given the ability to think. They were also given free will. All right, and if a person is not free to act on that will, then they're not free. So if God, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient being, is willing to allow his own creation, even to the point of absolute rebellion, which happened in the Garden of Eden, right? Human beings were given the free will. Human beings were given free will. They were given the right to do whatever they wanted because God didn't want automatons to love him. He wanted people capable of truly loving him, all right? And what did they choose to do with that freedom? They choose to act wrongly. That's one of the reasons why we have evil in the world. Now, people might ask, well, why, God, why doesn't God intervene? Again, God chooses not to intervene all the time because, again, he gives us free will. He also expects his people and the people who believe him to uphold righteousness and to intervene when they can and have righteous laws, all right, to the best of our ability because, again, we're fallible. But we have free will, and to be truly free and to have true liberty in a country, we have to allow people to exercise that free will. And that, what is that going to mean? Well, that means that there's going to be some people out there who are going to live in ways that we disagree with. There are people that are going to believe things that we disagree with. There are going to be people who are going to say things that we disagree with. And we can't go around misusing the English language and calling everything hate, calling, it, calling people who say such things stupid, calling people, you know, we have to respect that they have wrong ideas. It's the same reason why, you know, you let your children, you know, do things up to a point. And where is that point? Well, again, Mill would argue that that point is when that action hurts another person, either willfully or unwillfully, okay? And so that's where we draw the line, when the other person gets hurt. That's one of the reasons why one of the restrictions on free speech is you cannot incite a riot. Now, if the other side manufactures a riot and blames what you say, you're not going to be held accountable for that, but you have to be able to prove that. All right, and that's one of the things that we're actually starting to see now is the left is starting to manufacture riots in order to prevent speech from happening. We saw it in the University of California, Berkeley's campus. We're seeing it all around. And that's one of the reasons why good institutions like you know, uh, Grand Canyon University, who's a Christian organization, was afraid to allow someone like Ben Shapiro speak. All right, um, now he's allowed to speak. But for a while, they made a decision they didn't want to allow that. Why? Because when he tried to speak at Berkeley, there was a riot on campus. All right? So we have to be careful. We have to use our wisdom. You know, and if you don't have wisdom, if you don't feel like you have wisdom, well, that's the first start of wisdom. And you can pray and you can ask God for more. All right, guys. Well, we're getting to the end of... Um, the today's podcast again like i said as always right now i, I want to try to keep it around 30 minutes for you guys i know you guys have precious time i have precious time too i want to be able to spend it with my family today's my only day off this week we had a tournament this last week i was working 12 hour days every day um but you know what it was worth it it was fun well i hope you guys go out there and i hope you pursue your passions i hope you guys uh have fun uh, i hope this week is a blessing for you all I know it will be for me. I have another tournament uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Um, and so I'm excited to get through this week. However, Monday is going to be bitterly cold here in uh, Fort Worth, here in Texas. So uh, pretty scary stuff. Uh, bitterly cold for us, for those of you, if you are not from Texas, if you're outside of Texas, is uh, you know highs in the low 30s. So yeah, we're a little spoiled. But that's okay. Uh, we love our state and we love living here. Matter of fact, we just celebrated our Texas independence. Uh, it's a big deal for us, especially my family. My, uh, my wife is a direct descendant of Davy Crockett. And so Davy Crockett died in the Battle of the Alamo, helping fight for Texas independence. So uh, it's a big deal. Uh, that being said, uh, again, we'll move on next week. Hopefully next week we'll continue our series on the Declaration of Independence. But I hope today that you liked my little book review um, again, trying to keep it different, trying to keep it going, but I want to try to keep going every week. 
uh, I realized last time we missed three three weeks. So I don't want to do that, especially for people who are fans. I want to keep you uh, happy. Uh, and again, uh, let me know what you think about uh, today's podcast. Again, you can contact me on Twitter at Coach Joe Sheehan or at Joe underscore Sheehan underscore TX. Uh, again, uh, thank you guys for listening. Let your friends know about this. Get the word out. Let people know that we're here talking about America, talking about freedom, talking about liberty, and hopefully bringing a new idea to the world and bringing change by talking about this stuff around the dinner table. God bless.